if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, you got your second vaccination. We are both double vaxxed and ready to relax. Indeed, feeling good about it. Two-dose summer in full effect. Gotta love that. Hopefully everyone out there can get their doses as soon as they're available to them and get that full protection from this horrible virus we've been dealing with for, well, it feels like forever now. In the meantime, David, I guess we should do a podcast. You ready to go? We could do a podcast. All right, then. Here's the question. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's the 16th of February, 1899, at the Elysee Palace, the official residence of the President of France. The household staff are busy about their accustomed late afternoon tasks. Suddenly, a scream echoes from inside the President's office. President Felix Faure's aides burst into the room to find the president lying unconscious on his bed, and a young woman, whose staff will tell in later inquiry, was adjusting her clothes, also on the bed, screaming. The president is rushed to a hospital, but it's too late. He's pronounced dead on arrival. Well, David, I'm not sure what they were doing, but it must have been really good if it literally killed him. What do we know about Felix Fors and this young lady who he's found with on his literal deathbed? So Felix Four was the president of France. So obviously there's a ton of different things we could talk about, about his many accomplishments, his increasing efforts to create an alliance between France and Russia, and the ways that that helped to shape the geopolitics of the 20th century. And, well, I could go on and on. And as for the Young lady, there will be a number of rumors flying around France in the days immediately after the president's death of who precisely this young lady is, but it's later determined that it was a certain Marguerite Steinheil, who was a wealthy woman in her own right, slightly younger than 30 at this point, 29, and she referred to herself as a psychological advisor to the president but didn't have any kind of official role. And again, she was potentially notable in a number of different ways and would go on to have a fascinating life, and we can discuss that. But if you were in France in 1899, one of the most politically volatile years in French history, the thing that most people were discussing in the immediate aftermath of the tragic death of the president of the country was not his accomplishments, not even the future of French politics as a whole. No, there was one question on everybody's minds, and it was, how will this affect second lieutenant Alfred Dreyfus? Well, David, it sounds like she was offering up quite the psychological advice to the president. But that seems like a strange question that would be on people's minds. How will this affect second lieutenant Alfred Dreyfus? So who is he and how does he come into this story, David? 
Right. So we're going to need to go back a little bit earlier to give a proper introduction to who Alfred Dreyfus is. So the first thing you have to understand is that since 1871, France has had one real enemy, Germany. The new German nation was created by Prussia in the aftermath and as a result of the Franco-Prussian War. And that war has really created a long, intense rivalry and enmity between the nations of France and Germany that at this point in the 1890s is in full swing. And Lieutenant Dreyfus in 1894 was accused of being a spy for Germany, spying on France. And there was good evidence available that there was a real spy. Somebody was spying on the French army. But the evidence on who was dubious at best. And Dreyfus was suspected mainly, not solely, but primarily because he happened to be in a position to have some of the information that was known to have leaked, and more importantly, because he was Jewish, and to a certain strain in the right-wing politics of France, that meant that he and everyone of his religion could not be trusted. But then, in 1896, evidence came out suggesting that Dreyfus was innocent, and that the real spy was the wealthy, politically connected, and incredibly popular Captain Esther Hazy, who obviously denied it. And that created, inside the French army in 1894 and 1896 and onwards, two divided camps arguing as to which of these two very different junior artillery officers was the spy made all the more urgent when Dreyfus was found guilty of espionage and sent to Devil's Island, the infamous French penal colony. Now, that alone doesn't explain why all of France cares about Dreyfus and his case. To understand that, you really have to understand that French politics at this point were incredibly divisive. Two deeply antagonistic camps, left and right, who simply despised each other. And the Dreyfus affair was really made the fracture line between the two groups, primarily, but not solely, but primarily, by one famous newspaper article, Jacques by Emile Zola, still so famous that people recognize its name even today, where he accused President of France, Félix Faure, of being involved in a cover-up intended to prevent evidence of Dreyfus's innocence from being revealed to the public. Wow, David, it is quite the tale we've got here. A spy, a mole in the French forces. Of course, they've accused Lieutenant Dreyfus of being the spy. And now the whole country really is split on who might be this spy? He's serving time. And the accusation is that the cover-up goes right to the top of French politics to the president who is now dead. David, how can we begin to sort this all out and try to find out what is actually 
the truth here. So there's a lot going on, obviously. The good news is that there's a lot of information available about who might be the spy whom the French army is seeking that was not available in 1894 when Dreyfus was found guilty, but that is available by 1899 after five years of every tiny scrap of information surrounding the famous memorandum, the Bordereau, which was the essential piece of evidence that a spy actually existed at all. By this point, it's been analyzed. The handwriting has been analyzed. Evidence has been gathered concerning every detail mentioned in it and who would have had access to what reports at what time. In a legal sense, there's a lot of evidence. But on the other hand, up until now, Felix Four has been insistent that no further trial should take place because he views it as a political disaster for France. Any reopening, any continuing to argue about who the spy is is only going to make things worse in his opinion. But now, of course, he's dead, and it's entirely clear both to the Dreyfusards, the people who support Dreyfus, and the anti-Dreyfusards, that there is going to be a second trial. And that means not only that the truth is going to come out both through a legal process and through slow leaks of all related information, but also that France is going to go through another long and bitter battle between these two political factions who frankly, have hated each other for years, but who had never get more worked up than they do about this issue, about espionage and relationships with Germany and Judaism and minorities. There's all these politically charged, tense issues that are bound up in one man. And now France as a whole is uncomfortably aware that they're about to reopen all of them. David, it sounds like a true culture war in France here. Politics divided. So we're going to another trial here, another chance for Dreyfus to clear his name. What is the major evidence that comes out? So Dreyfus is really reliant on evidence, not so much clearing his name as demonstrating that Esther Hazy is, in point of fact, the guilty party, because there's not a lot of great evidence either way regarding the details of the memorandum. But there is a lot of evidence that Esther Hazy, who I've already described once as wealthy, and he certainly lived a wealthy lifestyle, but there's evidence that in 1893, after a series of bad investments an ugly separation from his wife, and a run of bad luck at the gambling tables, Esther Hazy was broke, and then mysteriously received the funds that he required to resume his high-flying lifestyle from an outside third party who made significant efforts 
to hide who was providing that money. That's circumstantial, David, but it sure seems quite damning for Hazy. Of course, he's not on trial here. Is there going to be enough for Dreyfus to actually walk free at the end of all this? Well, at the same time as Dreyfus's defense team has the classic problem for any defense of trying to prove a negative, the prosecution has an even worse problem. By this point, their finest two pieces of evidence in the original trial were a handwriting expert who definitively declared that it was Dreyfus's handwriting on the document which had been retrieved from the Germans, which was allegedly from the French spy and which was the centerpiece of this whole case. But that evidence had fallen apart when their handwriting expert turned out under greater public scrutiny to be, I don't want to say a fraud since that's not quite the correct term, but simply not to be scientific in any manner. He was a very convincing expert witness, very good at expressing concepts, but he proved unable to actually differentiate between people's handwriting with the specificity and capacity that he had claimed in earlier trials. So now that he's discredited, that information or that allegation is useless. And the other key piece of evidence that the prosecution had been relying on in the initial trial, a document provided by one Major Henri of the French Counterintelligence Department, turned out to be a forgery in a dramatic turn of events. It turned out that he had, when he realized that Dreyfus was likely to avoid a conviction with only the handwriting expert's testimony against him, simply created a document to help ensure that Dreyfus, who he was convinced was guilty, would go to jail. But both of those have, by this point in 1899, been subject to scrutiny in the press, and it's become increasingly clear that neither of those can be produced in court because they'll fall apart under the defense team's expertise. And of course, France, like any modern democracy, operates under the principle of innocent until proven guilty. So everyone going into this trial is worried that the evidence that they have is not strong enough to support the conclusions that they want the court to come to. All right, David. So we have a bit of a toss up here. It seems like the prosecution has not a lot of evidence. The defense has the difficulty of proving this negative. Who's deciding? Is this a jury or a judge? So the initial trial goes to the Supreme Court of France. It's an appeal. So we're not starting at the bottom here. We're going to the top. Right to the top. I like it. But the Supreme Court of France doesn't hear full criminal cases. They hear appeals. They decide points of law. They don't handle all the messy business of trying to get witnesses to testify and looking at evidence. Those are matters for lower courts to deal with. So the Supreme Court determines that the original trial was clearly flawed and needs to be redone. And at that point, the bitter legal battle immediately erupts over which court which lower court prepared to handle these matters 
should be the one that the Supreme Court should appoint to hear this trial, with Dreyfus and his supporters wanting it to be in an ordinary civilian court, but the anti-Dreyfusards and the prosecution wanting it to go to a military court. And again, David, this is really just ripping right through the heart of French society here. We've got half the people on one side, half on the other. Accusations fly back and forth. What is going to happen with trial number two? Well, the Supreme Court sends it back to the military court, a decisive victory for the prosecution. But at the same time, in a separate way, it's a decisive defeat for the legitimacy of the second trial. Simply put, very few Frenchmen really believe that there's any chance that the military court could find Dreyfus innocent at this point with so much of the military's own reputation and credibility staked on their initial procedures finding him guilty having been justified. But they go to the court and Dreyfus's defense believing that the court is biased and that an ordinary, simple attempt to defend their client and argue that the evidence is not sufficient to convict will never work, decide on a bolder, riskier strategy. They want to make it clear that it's the system that's on trial. They want to make it clear that Esther Hazy is their proposed, genuine, guilty party. They want to make, in short, a spectacle of these proceedings, putting pressure on the military tribunal. That is a different strategy indeed, David. They're going to turn this already hot-button political issue into even more of one and make the tribunal really feel the pressure that if they don't decide this fairly, people are going to know that there is issues within the French military system here. Can it work, David? Well, the short answer is no. The military tribunal finds Dreyfus guilty, but the trial itself is, from the military's perspective, a disaster. There's first an effort to make it be a closed court so that they don't have to be subject to public scrutiny. They're eventually forced to have it be an open court with reporters attending. Simply put, the government of the day is not willing to allow the outcry that their effort to have it be a closed court caused continue. And once it becomes an open court and there are reporters showing every day the bitter battles going on as Dreyfus's defense shreds the handwriting experts who are present, makes clear evidentiary statements trying to make it clear that evidence under which Dreyfus has been convicted is very slim, and also make their bold publicity friendly. There's newspaper headlines practically every day as the Dreyfusards make it clear who they believe the real spy was, that they believe that the military court process here is essentially corrupt, and try and continue to hammer home that this court is not fair. And even worse, the military judges themselves frequently during the trial display 
in minor ways, their own biases, especially anti-Semitism, which was incredibly common in French society at this point, but which is painfully obvious when even minor comments are being published in the newspapers across the nation as proof of the political inclinations of the tribunal. So, David, if Dreyfus can't win in the legal courts, can he win in the court of public opinion and actually, hopefully for his sake, get his freedom or some sort of vindication here? So he doesn't win in the court of public opinion. No one wins in the court of public opinion here. France is divided bitterly. There are riots. There were riots starting the day after that Zola published Jacques back in 1898. And for a full year, there have been riots on streets in cities across France. More than 55 cities in France are reported to have seen at least one riot in the years 1898 and 1899 that are believed to be related directly to the Dreyfus affair. And there's more than 203 individual riots reported, and that's somewhat controversially low as a figure. There were more riots in France over those two years, which may or may not have been associated with the Dreyfus affair specifically. It's tearing families apart. It's bitter in a way that doesn't quite capture the traditional left-right lines of political opinion, and that raises anti-Semitism specifically as a political issue to the forefront of people's minds. And all of that means that, no, there's no moment where 50% of the population just decides, I guess we were wrong and we should support this guy. But at the same time, the new government, eager to get themselves over this, to make this end, the bitterness, the division, the riots, they don't want any of it to continue. So they offer Dreyfus a compromise. They offer him a pardon if he will agree not to continue to proclaim his innocence, if he'll just shut up, avoid the media, and cease serving in the military at this point, if he'll take a pardon they're hoping that that will be enough to make this blow over. So Dreyfus in 1899 gets a pardon and at least manages to get out of Devil's Island and back into France. David, that is a wild amount of politics around a spy in the military. You wouldn't think this would be the sort of issue that could really divide a nation like this, but we've got hundreds of riots going on, bitter divisions. I guess in the end, it's good that Dreyfus does get his freedom, even if it's not really a complete vindication in either the legal courts or the court of public opinion. Is this the end of the Dreyfus affair, David? Well, not quite. The Dreyfusards, in the initial period after Dreyfus accepts his pardon, many of his supporters who supported him because politically they believed that this case was revealing that the French military and the French right wing were dangerous and threats to the Republic, many of Dreyfus's supporters are not simply willing to accept that he's taken a pardon and left. So the 
controversy as to who was the real spy continues, and Esther Hazy has to flee France and will live out the rest of his life in exile in Britain under a fake name to avoid people who believe that he is the real spy. But he doesn't go to Germany, David, so it's not obvious there that he's a spy coming home. No, certainly at the time, it's not the sort of thing which convinces everyone immediately that he was the spy. Obviously now, we know that he was the spy thanks to the fact that after the First World War, when Germany's records were available to the Allies, this was the sort of thing that could be easily checked. But at the time, there's no immediate confirmation. This sort of roundabout consequences of World War I. Meanwhile, for Dreyfus, I should wrap up his personal affairs as well. In 1906, a new left-wing government of France will let him rejoin the military, which he does, becoming an artillery officer once again. There's an assassination attempt. He's shot in the arm by a man who believes that he's a German agent and shouldn't be allowed to be a officer of the French military. And that, combined with his health problems related to his imprisonment in Devil's Island, means that he temporarily retires from the French artillery. But World War I drags him back in. He rejoins the colors with his son, also a junior artillery officer at this point. Yeah, how old would he be by World War I? So by World War I, he would have been in his early 50s, 54, I think. So not a young man at this point, as he's called back to the colors. And he serves through the remainder of World War I as a staff officer in the artillery. So he gets his chance to serve his country with reasonable distinction. And that, of course, wraps up his personal. He dies in 1935 in France, almost a forgotten figure. World War I really helps to drive the Dreyfus affair out of people's minds. But of course, that doesn't wrap up the political side of it, because the Dreyfusards, when last we discussed them, were still bitter, still unwilling to view with, let's say, equanimity what they view as clear evidence of major problems in the French military and the right-wing politics that it's associated with. And eventually, as we mentioned in 1906, there's a new much more left-wing government led by Georges Clemenceau, who win office in France, and they will make an effort to oppose anti-Semitism in French society as a whole, but more particularly to purge senior French officers who are considered overly right-wing and overly attached to right-wing political causes, which will help to create the crop of generals who will command during the First World War, generals like Joseph Joffre and Ferdinand Falk will get their opportunity to rise to senior roles as this cleaning house occurs. Does it have longer term uh, reverberations, David, this purge of anti-Semitism and just this general anti-Semitic period that France went through? Does this play a role later in the 1930s and 40s? Well, that's a very controversial question. Uh, there's no answer I can give that that everyone would be satisfied with. Certainly, people view it 
view the Dreyfus affair especially as a very clear demonstration in the anti-Semitism in France in that period. But we should remember that the anti-Semitic National League of France, which was an actual organization that was named that, well, it was uh, La Ligue Antisémitique Nationale de la France, to be more specific, pre-existed Dreyfus's initial conviction. So this certainly wasn't the start of anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic attitudes in France. And it certainly wasn't the end of them either. Of course, the Vichy government and its collaboration with the Nazis mean that any discussion of anti-Semitism in France in the 1930s and 40s is deeply and uncomfortably related to Nazi Germany and the Holocaust through the medium of French collaborators who were involved in enabling the Holocaust. So that's a complex question. The total results of the Dreyfus affair, the ways that it divided France, and to the the extent to which it was simply a reflection of pre-existing divides in French society versus created new ones, these are all still debated by historians to this day, but certainly it was a deeply important factor in the politics of France decades after the actual affair was over. And just to put a bow on this, David, how much did that death of Felix Fors on the 16th of February, 1899, play a role in all of this? Well, probably quite a large one. The obvious first point is that Felix Four was deliberately and successfully up until his death delaying any action, delaying any appeal to the Supreme Court for a new trial for Dreyfus in an effort to just wait out the political crisis that was the Dreyfus affair. Now, he'd waited for a full year and had not successfully waited out the crisis, so to some extent, it's questionable whether he could have. But at the same time, public attention on these kind of incidents simply can't be sustained forever. And there's a real possibility that had he survived, he could have successfully waited it out and left Dreyfus in jail and the political crisis of the Dreyfus affair to be forgotten as just another minor dispute, another minor legal case that happened to become a cause celebre. And since we're putting a little bow on things, I should mention that Marguerite Steinheil, who was in the room with Four when he died, would be accused of murdering Felix Four by various anti-Dreyfusides in particular, who accused her of doing it to reignite the controversy. Of course, there was no evidence of that whatsoever, and she continued on to have what appears to have been a long and fascinating life. She got accused also of murdering her husband and her mother in a mysterious case where she alleged that she had been, she and her family had been assaulted by men in robes who murdered her husband and her mother. The evidence that these men ever existed was dubious. The police put her on trial, but she was acquitted. And most people believe either that she did it 
or that it was political and related to the Dreyfus affair. But unfortunately, there simply isn't enough evidence to to say for sure, one way or another, what really happened in that terrible event. And she would go on to remarry to a British baron and lived a long life into the 1950s in Britain. Wow, David, lots of interesting characters in this one, lots of plot twists, political animosity, legal battles. It's all there. Thanks for telling us this story. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed it, please do like and follow us on whatever podcast platform you're on. David, we always like to end the show with a quiz, something more fun. This week, of course, the Olympics are underway in Tokyo. So I thought we would do a quiz about the history of Japan in the Olympics. All right. And it is true or false, David, to make it a little bit easier for you. So, true or false, Japan was the first Asian country to take part in a modern Olympic Games. Hmm. I really don't know the answer to that one, but Japan was certainly an early Asian country to modernize and to make an effort to have that modernization recognized in the West. So, I will guess true. You are correct, David. Japan competed for the first time in Sweden in 1912. No athletes from any Asian nation participated in the first four Olympics that were held before those games. Our next question, right along the same lines, David. True or false, Japan was the first Asian country ever to host an Olympic Games. Well, I think my line of reasoning from the last question continues to apply, so I will guess true once again. You are correct, David. That was the Tokyo 1964 Games. They were also awarded to Tokyo in 1940, but were canceled, of course, because of Japan's participation in World War II. And right now, of course, we're in the middle of a three games run in Asia, Pyeongchang in 2018, Tokyo this year in 2021, and Beijing coming up in 2022. So there are some more Asian hosts happening now. David, next question. True or false, Japan won its first medal in a team event at the 1948 Olympics in London. Their first medal in a team event. I would expect that a nation like Japan, which had been involved in the uh, Olympics since 1912, would have racked up a few medals in that time. But at the same time, individual events are more common for a small country to get medals in. So I will guess that this one is true. I got you here, David. It is false, and it is a trick question. Japan was not invited to compete at the 1948 Summer or Winter Olympics in the aftermath of World War II, and they actually had won their first team event medal back in their second games in 1920 in the men's doubles event in tennis and had won some other team events before 1948 as well. True or false, David? Japan won its first ever gold medal in a Winter Games as the host nation in 1972. It seems unlikely that they would get their first gold medal in the Winter Games as late as 1972, given how long they'd been in participating in the Olympic Games. So I'm going to guess that that is false. It's actually true, David. Yukio Kasaya won in the men's ski jumping on the normal hill as Japan swept the podium in that competition, winning their first Winter Olympics gold, their second Winter Olympics silver, and their first Winter Olympics bronze in their only three medals 
as the host nation that year. Final question for you, David. True or false, Japan has won more gold medals in judo than all other countries combined. Huh. That's an interesting one. Of course, I believe that judo is Japanese in origin, so it would make sense that they do very well in that sport. But as many medals as all other countries combined is a lot. Still, I think I'll guess that that is true. It's false, David, but it is closer than you might think. Japan has won about 30% of all the gold medals in judo heading into this Olympics, and they have as many gold medals as the next four best countries combined. So they have won quite a lot of judo gold medals. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. Enjoy the Olympics. Enjoy the Olympics.